0: Welcome back to TanakhCast. This is episode 125. We'll begin with a brief summary of Ezekiel chapters 20 through 23 and follow with some thoughts about various crucibles and Arthur Miller. Chapter 20 of the book of Ezekiel starts out innocent enough. Certain elders of Israel come to inquire of the Lord. So they sit down before Yehezkel at which point, quote, the word of the Lord came to me. And Yehezkel proceeds to tear a strip off by enumerating all the instances where God stepped up for the Jewish people and all he asked in return was fidelity. And in each instance, the Jews strayed and ran after idols. And each time God thinks I should just smite these people. But he relents each time, and his account goes way back to Egypt, to the exodus, and the wandering in the wilderness. And, well, we can fast forward here. To get to the point, keep sinning and you're screwed. Repent, and I will take you home. We're going home! Chapter 21 presents an odd moment in the God-prophet relationship where God tells Yehezkel to deliver a prophecy about burning up the Negev desert. And Yehezkel responds, Ah, Lord God, they say of me, he is just a riddle monger. In other words, he's worried about his customer reviews, but God steamrolls over his concern with another prophecy that won't come off as riddle mongery. Quote, I'm going to deal with you. I will draw my sword from its sheath, and I will wipe out from you both the righteous and the wicked. Do you understand the words that are coming out of my mouth? And Jerusalem will fall to the Babylonians. Make no mistake, it's over. Chapter 22 continues in a similar vein, with even more dire accounts of what will happen to Jerusalem. Jerusalem is personified only in the sense that the city is a person, and because Hebrew is a gendered language, the city, in this case, is feminine, but that's where it ends. Yehezkel does not get pervy until the next chapter. Here... He keeps hammering away at the city's iniquities in the way that one chastises a person for her moral failings. You did this. You, you, you did it. Yehezkel repeats the word Bach, you, 12 times in 11 verses. Safaria renders Bach as you or your, but it's more like in you. And the bad behaviors of are of a particular sort, what we would classify in Jewish tradition as being between humans, as opposed to the sort between humans and God, except for one, violating the Shabbat. And the bad behaviors between people, a lot of, a lot of them echo the pervy stuff from the previous episode and the upcoming chapter, but they also focus on murder. In fact, many of the behaviors Yechezkel cites here mirror the Ten Commandments, murder, theft, adultery, violating the Shabbat, dishonoring parents, And the pervy stuff echoes a lot of the priestly preoccupation with sexual impropriety that we find in Leviticus chapters 18 and 19. But then again, Yehezkel was a Kohen, a priest, and an active one at that, so that kind of makes sense. And no one is untouched by these bad behaviors. Prophets and officials steal and murder, priests, Kohanim, the supposed protectors of the tradition, they've profaned the sacred but all's well that ends well, I guess. Quote, O mortal, the house of Israel has become dross to me. They are copper, tin, iron, and lead. But in a crucible, the dross shall turn into silver. It will be a painful process, but in the end, necessary. Chapter 23 unfolds another one of those pervy parables, and one of which I discussed in the previous episode. This time, instead of it involving a foundling, it involves two sisters. Quote, They played the whore in Egypt. They played the whore while still young. Well, there, their breasts were, okay, you know, that's quite enough of that. I mean, I'm not averse to profane language or frank discussions of human sexuality or saying breast or nipple, especially if it's part of a good joke where the punchline punches up instead of down. But I'm uncomfortable with gratuitous, degrading imagery. So blah blah yada-yada, Jews bad, I'll smite you and, quote, you shall suffer the penalty for your sinful idolatry and you shall know that I am the Lord God. And on that highly abridged, still slightly pervy note, here endeth the lesson. I guess I just gotta put it out there and say that Yehezkel is definitely creating a toxic work environment for me with his gross old man lech behavior. That's nasty. So I'm going to focus on one non sexually gratuitous image that Yehezkel deploys in chapter 22 and perhaps riff on that for a bit if you don't mind. That of a crucible and how quote the house of israel has become dross to me they are all copper tin iron and lead but in a crucible the dross shall turn to silver as much as Hezekiel may have had a reputation of being a riddle-monger here his meaning is rather plain do you understand the words that are coming out of my mouth i knew what a crucible was from its more colloquial meaning but an actual crucible is a ceramic or metal container in which metals or other substances may be melted or subjected to a very high temperature. I had to look that up. And like the dross in the crucible, Yechezkel tells us that the Jews will experience God's searing anger. And in this context, it took me a minute to connect the word Yechezkel uses in the Hebrew, kur, with Safaria's use of the word crucible, because I knew kur from two very different contexts than this, "Demona Israel and Ellis Island. And I, I'm purposely kind of North Americanizing my pronunciation of the Hebrew, so I don't roll that raish. Anyway, yes, Demona and Alice Island are both places. The former is located in the Negev, 36 kilometers south of Beersheva, and happens to be the site of the Negev Nuclear Research Center. The facility houses a nuclear reactor, which since its construction has only been used for research purposes into atomic science. Wink wink. Israelis often refer to the facility as the Demona Reactor, or in Hebrew, Hakur HaGarini. And when I first heard Hakur HaGarini as a child, I knew what a Garin was, sunflower seeds. I'd seen signs in movie theaters in Jerusalem saying, Asur Lefatzek Garinim, which I guess translates into, don't crack seeds. For the obvious reasons, because, you know, when you crack sunflower seeds in your mouth, you know, you do it in your teeth and it's very noisy, and then the shells inevitably end up and you spit them out on the floor. So it took a little explaining by my aunt and uncle to clarify that what was going on in Dimona did not involve sunflower seeds, but something more science and something much more secretive. As for Ellis Island, the kur there had nothing to do with the sunflower seeds or wink-wink atomic research. The kur there was what the Ben Yehuda Dictionary calls kur ha'hituch." Or the melting pot Ellis Island was as the story goes the entry point for hundreds of thousands of immigrants to the United States and the first moment where these folks were asked to efface their foreignness in order to fit in with America However, when I saw Core rendered by Safaria as Crucible, I locked onto Arthur Miller's Crucible and how this play about the Salem Witch Trials really wasn't about Salem or witches, but about communists. One could say that the use of the word to describe the goings-on in the play essentially defined the figurative meaning of the word a situation of severe trial. But I didn't stop riffing there with the play. My thoughts gravitated to the man himself, which reminded me of a uh, a drash delivered by Rabbi Pinky Schmeckelstein, whose words of Torah dripping with sarcasm and condescension can be found at a link I'll post at thenextjew.com. Love you, Reb Pinky. Ad me'av esrim. Anywho, some context. So, Reb Pinky was discussing the Torah portion about Korach and the Jewish people once again rising up in rebellion against God and Moshe, this time led by, like I said, the eponymous Korach. At first, Reb Pinky considers why it is the people keep rebelling, but then he lands on an even more pressing question, and I'll let Reb Pinky take it from here. Why do we and our wise rabbinical predecessors continue to look back at the generation of the Exodus as the paradigm of Jewish virtue, when in truth they were a bunch of Vildichayas? Compared to them, a band of marauding rabid water buffalo are cooperative. Indeed, this paradox is highlighted by the following Maise Shahaya. In the late 1950s, the Bubba Varevi was sitting in first class on an airplane next to the famous playwright Arthur Miller. The playwright observed the care and reverence with which the Bababur Hasidim escorted their rebbe through the airport, got him settled on the plane, and checked on his well-being periodically. Miller turned to the rebbe and asked, Rabbi, how come it is that when I lecture at a university, a pillar of secular knowledge, I am treated casually by the students, even with disrespect, while you, teaching an archaic tradition, are treated with respect, almost as a beloved surrogate parent by your followers? The Rebbe smiled and replied, It is very simple. You, a secular person, tell your students that they are descended from monkeys, so when they look at you, they see a person one generation closer to their primitive ape past. We tell our students that they are descended from the generation at Sinai, so when they see me, they see a person one generation closer to the face-to-face encounter with the Aymeshe. Arthur Miller stroked his chin and thought for a moment. And then he responded, that may be true, but I'm sleeping with Marilyn Monroe, so who cares? The Bubba Varebi, recognizing that he had lost the argument, never traveled by airplane again. God damn, that was a good one. Arthur Asher Miller was born in New York City in 1915. He was the second of three children of Augusta Barnett and Isidore Miller. Isidore came from Galicia, at which point was part of the Austro-Hungarian Empire, and though Augusta was a native New Yorker, her parents were also Galicianers from Poland. In other words, Jews! Isidore owned a successful women's clothing manufacturing business, but after the Wall Street crash of 1929, the family lost almost everything and moved to Brooklyn. As a teenager, Miller delivered bread every morning before school to help the family, and after graduating high school in 1932, he worked at several menial jobs to pay for his college tuition. Only when he reached the University of Michigan did he start to write, and though first majoring in journalism, he eventually switched to English and began to write plays. He wrote All My Sons. He wrote Death of a Salesman. This would have been enough to guarantee Miller's place in the pantheon as one of America's greatest writers, But what happened in 1956 cemented his place in the American imagination. He married Marilyn Monroe. Norman Mailer quipped that this marriage brought together the great American brain and the great American body. And before all of you prudes and in-marriage zealots get your gut kiss in a twist, Marilyn converted to Judaism. I bet you didn't know that. I didn't know that. She converted, as biographer Jerry Myers recounted, to quote, express her loyalty and get close to both Miller and his parents. She told her close friend Susan Strasberg that, quote, I can identify with the Jews. Everybody's always out to get them, no matter what they do, like me. Her conversion was not a secret. Egypt, in fact, banned all of her movies because they didn't want a Jew Jewing up their movie screens. However, once the divorce was finalized in 1961, the ban was lifted, although Marilyn continued to self-identify as Jewish, but with a slight tweak. She described herself as a Jewish atheist and within 19 months after the divorce, Marilyn was dead from a drug overdose. Or was she? Miller emerged from the crucible of the melting pot, very much American, his story of scrappy immigrants arriving on the shores of a new land, of shedding all the old world trappings, building yourself up, getting knocked down, and then building yourself up again. And then of course, there's Marilyn Monroe. Can you think of a story more American than that? Except at the same time, Miller interrogated what America meant. Get ready for the purple prose portion of the program. He gave voice to America's much-abused working class and exposed America's self-mythologizing, especially about the American dream, through what was later described as subjective realism. All My Sons was a tragedy about a manufacturer who sold faulty parts to the U.S. military to save his business. He followed with Death of a Salesman, another tragedy about a failed businessman trying to remember and reconstruct his life. Willie Lohman kills himself so his son might benefit from the insurance money. Critics and intellectuals panned Death of a Salesman in its day as sentimental melodrama and Marxist propaganda. But the crucible plumbed the depths of America's hysteria, while a view from the bridge focused on obsession and betrayal. In a sense, Miller's voice was very much a prophetic one, like Yehezkel's, except without the pervy parables. As Miller himself put it, Playwriting could change America, quote, That meant grabbing people and shaking them by the back of the neck. If that's not the best description of the prophet's premise, I don't know what is. If you like what you heard today, spread the word about TanakhCast. Send a friend an email to say, Hey, would it kill you to check out TanakhCast? Or even better, write a brief review at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher Smart Radio, or SoundCloud. It's a small thing, really, but it will help other people who might be interested in some Bible learning find this podcast. Or if you want to help in a bigger way, support us at Patreon. Just search for Tanakhcast and pledge your Shekels either on a one-time or monthly basis and receive special blessings from the Most High. I thank you in advance for that, and encourage you to join us again in two weeks for... Episode 126, when we continue the book of Ezekiel, with chapters 24 through 27.